0: Stem Punks. Welcome to stem Welcome to Stempunks. Welcome to stem Punks. Stem Punks is a bi-monthly podcast intended to bring science, technology, engineering, engineering. straight to your ears from our Stempunks studio. Hang on, we'll take you for a ride that includes a whole lot of fun and a little bit of education on the side. Stay tuned. Nice to be in Orbit. <laughs> Welcome to Episode 2 of the StemPunks Podcast. My name is Joe Garut, and I'll be your host. As always, I'm accompanied by my trusty assistant, Stemba. Hello, Stemba. Hello, Joe. I'm sure glad you're with me today because I've got a lot of links that are going to need to go into the show notes, and I'm sure that that's something you can help me out with. I love to help you. (laughs) I know you do. On today's podcast, we're going to tell the story of the birds and the bees. Let me tell you about the birds and the bees and the flowers and the trees. Okay, okay. More specifically, how flowers use bees to make more flowers that may turn into fruits or vegetables for you and I to eat. Me too? Well, not you, StemBot. Oh, I'd love to taste the fruits and vegetables. I'm not quite sure how we would work that out. I think I'm going to design some digital taste buds. Okay, sounds good. It could happen. Of course it could, StemBot, and you're the one to do it. Now, back to the show. We live in a beautiful place, this planet, and we have a spot here at STEM Punk Studios for a few raised beds. So a few years ago, while we were trying to grow some flowers and a few food items, including some squash, you know, we had butternut squash, pumpkins, zucchini, and the plants were growing quite nicely. But as we tried to mitigate the pesky voles, <laughs> We witnessed glorious yellow orange flowers blooming, happily reaching toward the sky. What we did not see soon after was, quite literally, the fruits of our labors. Oh, at first, we started to see some growing. The female flowers were starting to fruit, but then within a few days, they'd be on their way back into the soil as withered old spinsters who never got a chance. So, some research enlightened me to the fact that the likely reason for their demise was due to the lack of pollination. I learned that unlike self-pollinators, such as the tomatoes I grow and covet every year, the squashes need to have something to bring the pollen from the happy and numerous stamen of the males to the waiting pistols of the females. Hey, baby. Yeah. Yes, I got geeky about it once I had to do some research. You see, STEM is included in everything. The primary agents in this not-so-covert operation are the honeybees. Hoverflies, bumblebees, wasps, and even blackflies occasionally will help in the pollination process. What I noticed, however, is that there were none of these garden helpers present in my garden. You know, at the time, I didn't know much about why. I did some head scratching and some research, and came up with an answer. But for the purposes of this podcast, I'm going to go to our guest and let him tell you about it. StemBot, can you cue that up?
1: Okie dokie. Hi, everybody. My name is Adoni Melathopoulos. I am the Pollinator Health Extension Specialist with Oregon State University. I'm in the Department of
0: Horticulture. Adoni, welcome to the StemPunks podcast. You know, in my journey as a beekeeper, I came across a question that I wanted to ask you. Are pollinators necessary, and should I be working hard to try and raise bees for pollination?
1: Uh, okay, the first question is, pollinators are necessary, yes. They've been necessary for hundreds of millions of years. We've had this big radiation in flowering plants that took place way back then, um, and although not all the plants that are angiosperms require an insect pollinator to transfer pollen, a lot of them do, and so they've co-evolved with pollinators. So. Yes, necessary. Whether keeping bees is going to solve the problems of pollinator decline, I think is a little more tricky question. And um, I often tell people, we've been given this delightful abundance of pollinators with crazy and weird behavior, and it should be enough just to take pleasure out of keeping the bees. There's no better thing to do than sit in front of a honeybee colony and open it up on a beautiful day and just see this wonder this wonderful machine just you know whirring
0: it is absolutely amazing and i know exactly what you're talking about so what i'm hearing you say then is that honeybees are not the only ones that are out there doing the job we've got a lot of other pollinators out there and it's my understanding that there's a project in Oregon to try and track different species of, of bees in particular, but maybe more pollinators. Um, that's the Oregon Bee Atlas Project, and I believe you're involved with that, right?
1: Yeah, we started it about a year ago, and the Pacific Northwest is a real black hole. There are, lar- there are counties where a person can go out and find some bees that had never been found in that county before. That's how poorly sampled it was. And so with that spirit of like, you know, I really think with pollinators, it has to start with a wonder about how they operate. We launched this atlas where we trained people up uh, and gave them tools to go out. um, It's kind of like Star Trek. It's a four year mission and they're to boldly go out and find uh, bees in their county that nobody's ever seen before.
0: Well, I know you've pleased all of our Trekkies out there. Uh, Captain, I'm a stem back, not a
1: pollinator. <laughs> right now we're in our first year and I have a student next door who's just working on the insect labels and there's fifteen thousand new specimens, new records generated by these volunteers this year. It's really remarkable. I found some crazy bees that we didn't know were here. <laughs> when it comes to biodiversity studies, you have this thing called the species abundance curve. So if you go out and catch ten bees, they're probably they're gonna be the most common bees uh, you'd ever seen, so you really have to catch a lot before you start to see things that maybe are rarer in the landscape. You know, they may pop up once in a while in one specific area. So uh, we're we don't know many species. That's going to take us. Uh, we're they're in the process actually of working through uh, these taxonomic keys to figure out who's who.
0: Can people join the Oregon Bee Project?
1: People can get involved. Uh, the website is if you go to the Oregon Bee Project and backslash. Uh, B-Atlas, or if you just type Oregon Bee atlas into a search engine, you'll find us. And on that, you will notice that there is a way that you can register for our introductory training. So it's free, and it gets you all the things you need to know to become a person who does this.
0: That was started because there was an incident in Portland, right?
1: There was. That's exactly it. It was not honeybees. It's peculiar. In a lot of states, the call to action from the legislature has come through honeybees. But for us, it was an application of an insecticide to shade trees in a Target parking lot in Portland.
0: All right. And I'd also like to give you a plug for your book, Residential Beekeeping.
1: Yep. Check it out. We also have a a website which has information for the public, beekeepers, but also for uh, municipalities called residentialbeekeeping.org, where you can also find that publication and get a digital copy if you don't have a hard copy there.
0: And we'll put a link in the show notes for that. Roger, roger. Fantastic. So back to the story. After a failed attempt to act as Yenta the matchmaker to my plants, matchmaker, matchmaker,
1: make me a match, find me a find, catch me a catch,
0: which involves hand pollination, (gasps) I decided to become a beekeeper. You know, since things in the universe tend to align if we let them, it also happened that near the same time an Indiegogo crowdfunding campaign came to my attention. It was for the now-famous Flow Hive. It was to make the collecting of honey very simple, and I thought that if I was going to do this beekeeping thing and could manage to get some honey as a result, the Flow Hive would be the simplest form of doing that. StemBot, please put a link in the show notes below for the Flow Hive. As you wish. (laughs) Thank you. Now begins my beekeeping journey. I don't want to trudge through all the trials, research, and tribulations of becoming a beekeeper, but suffice it to say that it's not as hands-off as I had thought. I figured that since nature had done such a good job of creating an incredible creature like the bee without any of my help, that I wouldn't need to do much other than provide an occasional check-in. You know, feed a little at the start and let them do their thing, happily pollinating both my garden and the gardens of my neighbors. So... You know, what I learned was, unfortunately, for my first few rounds of beekeeping, that is not the case. In short, the first year, they didn't make it through the winter. If you're a bee enthusiast, you can read more about my failures in the show notes below. Joe, do you really want to put that in? Yes, I do, STEMBOT. Learning is a constant process, and we need to share what we learn with others. Roger, roger. My second attempt was interrupted by a huge forest fire about 40 miles away that created a lot of smoke throughout the Columbia River Gorge. The smoke in our area was strong enough to cause headaches and respiratory problems for the human inhabitants and to send the bees winging for another home. Not much could be done to foresee or prevent that. I know of at least nine other beekeepers in the area that lost their bees for the same reason. So... I began again this past spring, thinking I had learned enough to be successful. But, alas, here I am in October with a hive that was doing pretty well until about two weeks ago. I did a hive inspection, and we discovered there were no eggs. There was a few larvae, and we had a few new queen cells. Oh my... Which means that it's likely that there was no viable queen in my hive. You see, bees will take care of their own and make emergency queen cells when needed. There's more on that in the links below. Stembot, will you? I'm already on it. Great. You're the best. Thank you. So to see this type of a condition in a hive in the Pacific Northwest in October is a death knell in most cases. My beekeeping mentor postulated that the hive was diseased due to varroa mites. That's V-A-R-R-O-A. For those who don't know, the varroa mite is one of the biggest concerns of beekeepers the world over. StemBot, let's go back to my interview with Adoni Melathopoulos and talk about varroa mites. I've already got it queued up. Here you go. Okay, so let's talk just a little bit about varroa mites. My understanding is they came from Brazil and uh, were on a colony that was brought into Florida, and then they rapidly spread around the U.S. They're
1: everywhere. Everybody's got them. There's, I think, Newfoundland. There's this little province in Canada that's off in the Atlantic. Is the only place I know that doesn't have them. Every, everywhere you've got them, there's no beekeeper that doesn't have them. Everybody has them. You treat them with an acaricide. they come back, they're there. When the colony is expanding and you have a lot of brood rearing, that's when these mites grow. And um, we also don't have a lot of great ways to manage them. If you don't manage for your colony for varroa mites, the colony will die. There's just no question about it.
0: And there are several ways to treat for them, right? I mean, there's uh, traditional chemical methods, there are essential oils, and uh, there's even a guy in Bellingham who is treating with mushrooms that have some antimicrobial properties to them. Um, But uh, naturally, hygienic bees would be the best, right?
1: Yep. And the thing that would be great is, as you mentioned, having resistance Uh, built into the bees. And there is a mechanism, a a couple mechanisms, but they're really hard to breed for. The one which has been shown to be very effective is this, the bees can figure out if uh, if there's a reproducing family of mites under the cell. So, you know, the mites reproduce with the pupa underneath the cell capping and the bees can kind of like sniff it and they abort those cells so that mites never get a chance to reproduce because every time they start reproducing them, these this breed of bees can smell it and they kick them out.
0: So, is there any way for a beekeeper to go treatment free? Is that possible? No. <laughs> okay. Okay. There's no
1: way to go. There's no way to manage your colonies without treatments. You got to do something. There's not a lot of new, uh, powerful uh, acaricides, which is a pesticide for uh, mite, out there. There's been a real proliferation of alternatives. Some of the most innovative use of natural products is in beekeeping. Organic acids have been one of them, either as a fumigant, and, or there's this product called oxalic acid, which irritates the mites. There are these essential oils, primarily thymol, which is a component in a bunch of essential oils. You essentially fumigate the colony, and it, it's harder on the mites than it is on the bees. And, um, and there's a number of other products, There's one made out of hops. Anyways, all of these products are not as effect, highly effective as those you know hard chemistry so they require a little bit of finesse one of the things that happens is the beekeeper starts out and they try some of these other things and they're a little contextual in how they work and so they end up, end up having a loss and you know it's confusing to them why the colony dies. but to do that to breed for this you have to have an infected you have to have highly infested frames and some poor person's got to go cell by cell uncapping them till they find one it's Tedious work for
0: robots. I could do that job. <laughs> yes you could, Stembot, but I hope you'll stay here with me. So those colonies are worth finding, huh? Those
1: colonies are out
0: there. Well that seems like the way to go then. What would you say briefly to talk about pesticides and pollinators. You know, recently in the last couple of years, we've had incidents come up in the news about trying to ban different pesticides and not buying plants from stores that use pesticides when they try to grow them. And and how do we try and reach the people who need to try and control pests, but also try to protect the insects that are so important to our survival?
1: A person who applies a pesticide is a busy person, they've got to make a living, and how do we kind of slightly give them education so that they can get their job done but not
0: have these effects on pollinators? That's just it. We've got to educate, don't we? You know, STEM ties all this together, and that's why we want to do this podcast. I also want to give you a little shout-out for your award that you've received for the Oregon Bee Project. That's a pretty big deal. It's a great honor. We've
1: been doing the Oregon Bee Project for a year, and we got noticed by... um, uh, pollinator partnerships, uh, is this big, um, national organization and they have these pollinator advocate awards. And because of the work that I've been doing, uh, in the state, uh, on this, uh, in collaboration with a lot of people, we were awarded this uh, honor and,
0: you know, Isabella Rossellini, the movie star also got this award once. So i wow. like, I'm in really, yeah, I'm like, you in, are in, in classy company. company, my friend. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Well, and thank you so much for your time today and for being on the StemPunks podcast. So much fun. Thank you so much. You bet. Now, in this process, I have learned that if you purchase bees from a source that utilizes chemical treatment of mites, then you must continue that treatment due to the bees' reliance upon it through breeding and rearing at the source. I've also learned that there is a source for treatment-free feral bees right here in Washington. There's a link to the Olympic Wilderness Apiary in the show notes below, and they go to great lengths to promote treatment-free hygienic bees. If this year's hive does indeed fail, then I will be sourcing my bees from them. So the takeaway to this journey through bee country is that I am going to continue to be diligent about trying to raise bees because I think they're important. I know that we need pollinators. My neighbors will benefit. Eventually, I'll be able to get enough zucchini for a little zucchini bread, have pumpkins for the kids to carve, and have a beautiful garden in the process. Not only that, I'll be looking out for the future of the planet. Thanks for being with us on the StemPunks Podcast. StemBot, let's buzz on out of here. Roll the end credits. Okey-dokey. This episode of the StemPunks Podcast is brought to you by Mr. Moneybags. Because we can't make episodes without money and we can't get money without episodes. Thanks, Mr. Moneybags. By Wample Creative. A Wample is a purposeful journey to a vague destination. Let Wample create something purposeful for you, no matter where you're going. And I want to take a moment to talk to you about the Gorge Performing Arts Initiative, whose mission it is to lead the development of a multi-use facility that will be a destination for outstanding performing arts in the Gorge. They, like us, are seeking funding to build this fantastic facility. You can find out more at gorgeperformingarts.org. There's a link in the show notes for more. On the next episode of the STEMPunks podcast, take off with us as we talk about drones. Stay tuned.